1: Hello and welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern.
0: And me, Robert Peston.
1: So, in terms of what we're talking about today, we've got a a little bit of a Christmassy feel in the sense we're talking about chocolate because loads of people will no doubt have eaten a lot of it. But we're looking at it in the
0: sense of a global industry and where it's going.
1: Yeah, exactly. And what's going on with some of the names in it, like Hotel Chocolate. We're talking as well about the next year in terms of what labour could do for business and the economy
0: essentially we've got an election coming up next year how much scope is there for whoever forms the next government at the moment looks as though it's going to be labor to actually get the economy motoring again get investment going what can you do to stimulate business consumption um will the new chancellor have effective levers
1: and also we've talked a little bit about kind of fast fashion and its place in uh, the economy. So we're going to talk in particular about one of the big companies in that area called Shein. Very controversial um,
0: company, I would is. say. It a is. A huge Chinese company worth billions and billions and billions. A lot of talk that it's going to float on the stock market. But is it a force for good or actually a business we should all be a bit concerned about?
1: Yes. So uh, we'll come to that a little bit later. Should we start with chocolate then? I mean, obviously, this time of year, everyone's eating it. It's an industry worth about $5 billion. Pounds for the UK economy. Do, do you have a favourite chocolate, by the way? What's your...
0: I love chocolate. I'm slightly addicted to chocolate. I'm particularly obsessed with chocolate ice cream and uh, there was a period of my life where I would eat more or less, an entire tub of chocolate ice cream before going to bed, and then
1: before and then, bed. And, then,
0: and, then and then not quite understand why I hadn't got any sleep that night. Anyway, uh, schoolboy era, unfortunately committed when I was old enough to know a lot better. But now I'm slightly obsessed with chocolate.
1: So I did a documentary for the BBC on the history of chocolate. It was called Made in Great Britain, and we did this whole series and looked at different industries and how they impacted areas of the country. So we did like the hat industry, steel making, and chocolate was one of them. And, you know, we focused on York, but obviously that the picture is much more national than just York in terms of the history of chocolate. So can I give you my little, here's the history of chocolate. Um, So it started in this country as a luxury drink in the Georgian era, and it was seen as an ethical alternative to alcohol which is why the Quakers loved it. And the Quakers are a huge part of the story of the chocolate industry in the UK. Um, And to begin with, it was a right carry on kind of preparing these cocoa beans from scratch. You know, it was roasting, shelling, grinding. It was quite a labour intensive job and they were really expensive. And then as we went into the Victorian era, they tried to make them more affordable. So there was this whole scandal around chocolate in the Victorian era and for a few other food products as well. And it's where our food safety and regulations came from because people were adding brick dust and plaster to chocolate in order to thicken it up, to have more of it to sell. And obviously this was killing people. So um, it was happening with bread and a few other foods too. And this is where, you know, the kind of fundamental health and safety laws came in. So, So that was in the Victorian era. And then eventually they worked out a way to make them solid chocolates. They were really super expensive though. They were hand decorated with exotic flavors. And in the late Victorian period, getting a box of chocolates was the equivalent of a marriage proposal. That's how luxurious they were. But then it was kind of in the early 1900s and 1930s that chocolate became available for everyone and became much more of a, not so much of a luxury anymore. And my favourite story in all of this Is about the Kit Kat and where the Kit Kat came from so the guys who worked at the Roundtree factory in York were all asked to try and come up with a new product to help make chocolate more accessible for people and and more affordable and so they came up with this kind of pack lunch size chocolate bar which had wafer in it which obviously made it cheaper which was the Kit Kat. So that's a nice little story for you, but yeah, these were very much companies owned by the Quakers and set up by them. You've, you know, Birmingham's, you've got Cadbury's, Roundtree's, and York Fries in Bristol. They did lots for their workers there. They built houses and parks for workers, and then. The big multinationals swept in uh, to warn them all now.
0: So there's a sort of paradox here, it seems to me, because one of the things that's really striking is that these Quaker families did try and do good and many of them set up these charitable foundations. We've got the Cadbury Foundation, we've got the Joseph Roundtree. Foundation. And they still do really. I mean, Joseph Browntree Foundation does more important work on understanding the causes of poverty and how to lift people out of poverty than pretty much any other charity in the country. And they are also, these foundations are great contributors to really socially important ventures in the UK. So there's been this incredibly positive legacy from these chocolate businesses and these founding families. But it is also the case that the chocolate industry globally does an enormous amount of harm. I mean, I was very struck. I don't know if you saw this, but in Africa, parts of Africa, the way that the chocolate plantations are leading to deforestation yeah. is really disturbing. Obesity,
1: uh, as well, is obviously another big one, and sugar, and and diabetes, and things.
0: But I just wanted to share some statistics with you about, as I say, the damage that cocoa production does. So more than 70% of the world's crop comes from the Ivory Coast and Ghana. And since 2000, cocoa production has driven 37% of Ivory Coast's forest loss in protected areas and 13% of Ghana's. I mean, guess how much the farmers get. So from a typical chocolate bar right if you're a farmer in ivory coast and ghana guess how much of the value of that chocolate bar you get
1: it's it's, it's going to be tiny yes, isn't it yes
0: 5% i mean it's 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 literally minuscule yeah um then there is the other side of all of this which is the extent to which in some parts of the world there is slave labor employed yeah. uh, when it comes to cocoa production. So a, a business that really interests me, I think we'll probably come back to Hotel Chocolat, you know, which is in a sense which sparked your interest yeah. in this initially, but Tony's Chocolonely yeah. is an extraordinarily interesting business because it was set up in the Netherlands. I think the guy who did set it up was, it was sort of in TV at the time that he set it up and he was obsessed with the fact that it was almost impossible to buy a chocolate bar that wasn't in some senses exploiting very, very poor people. In his case, he thought there was you know, an enormous amount of slavery involved in chocolate production. And he wanted to produce genuinely ethical chocolate. And he created this business, as I say, Tony's Chocolonely, It's weird. Until I researched this for this program, I always thought it was Tony's Chocoloni. Yeah, uh, I, I, that's what I had in my head because I, I always I could never see the L. It just and Tony's Chocoloni just sounded easier yeah. to say. But he said it's called Chocolonely because he felt very lonely because he cared about. The terrible conditions in this industry, and he w- he felt he was the lone voice, as it were, trying to produce this ethical chocolate. So he, he's created this business that's now worth an enormous amount of money, and you know, it's, from really small beginnings, it's now really a pretty big chocolate yeah. business. because it only
1: appeared actually on the shelves in the UK about four years ago, but it's now the UK is the biggest market for it outside of the Netherlands, and it's it's doing incredible. Yeah, well. like, I mean, the other know, thing you- I like about it as well, if you notice, that the bar is um, all kind of it's not even. In chunks that you break it up with and yeah, I find that
0: very annoying actually because I, do you know else, why I get crumbs is? everywhere but anyway get <laughs>
1: the reason for that actually is because he's making a point about inequality and not everything is divided equally in terms of you know society and chocolate making so it's to remind you of that point but, but, it but does even the this business in the
0: bag. is periodically though, skirted with controversy because It lost one of the badges for being ethical because it, I mean, presumably inadvertently started buying chocolate from a source where they couldn't prove that all the cocoa was, as I say, from an ethical source.
1: The big issue for these kind of, because you've seen so many more kind of artisan chocolatiers pop up, haven't you? And, you know, I've got a friend who's one called Paul Young. He used to have a a shop in Sohoys you know it's been tough time in his market is it's hard to make yourself known to customers isn't it I think that's a big problem for them also Montezuma they went bust you remember this was a chocolate brand you'd often see and again you kind of posh department stores or whatever and it started to pop up in the supermarkets but it's such a saturated market in many respects and so they went bust they ended up being rescued by Paramount Retail Group and they were blaming the kind of cocoa prices as well as the sugar prices but also it is this point of, of trying to stand out in the market. But what has been a big success is Hotel Chocolat and they have just been bought by Mars for over 500 million pounds, which is... It's had a good performance since its founding, but has had really tough times in the last couple of years until recently, until they've just had the best Christmas, I think, on record. But they were kind of set up with the aim of taking on Thorntons. It was set up by a guy called Angus Thurwell, some call him the Willy Wonka of our times, and a guy called Peter Harris. It was originally called Chalk Express, but they then rebranded it as Hotel Chocolat in 2003. And it, it it's had some tough times, but this Christmas, i.e. last Christmas, just gone, was its best on record and it's just been snapped up by Mars. So it's interesting. I wonder if people are still going to want it if, it, if they know it's owned by Mars. But I guess that happens with lots of other brands too, doesn't it? And it works out all, all, all right.
0: Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but the founders have obviously decided they want the money. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which um, maybe given that they actually have been in it for the long term. Nobody should resent, since we're great believers on this program in you know rewards for creating a product and a service that improves people's lives. And I am one of those people who thinks that chocolate does improve your life, I have to say. But this ethical question is an important yeah. one. I mean, I'm quite struck that the European Union has actually got landmark important regulation coming into force. And from January, companies will be... Be obliged to report on environmental and human rights contraventions in the supply chains. Yeah, right. And so, and this this will have a bigger impact on chocolate companies because you know they will have to demonstrate, you know, whether you know they will have to basically take much more care to make sure mm. uh, that they are not sourcing products in a way that is exploiting vulnerable people. And there are new rules also coming in that will ban products that lead to deforestation. So this is an industry which is absolutely at the sharp end of protecting human rights and protecting the environment. So costs will inevitably go up. I have to say, I regard that as a good thing if it leads to you know, less damage to the environment if it leads to people in poorer countries getting better wages, but it's going to be a challenge for Mm. these companies.
1: What's interesting about what's been going on with the, the chocolate Uh, industry and chocolate sales is we really went wild for it in the pandemic so they had a great we got fat yeah (laughs) yeah we did remember Um, i'm talking personally (laughs) i know me too me too um so you know there was a high demand for chocolate so their sales have have slipped a bit but it is still an industry that's forecast to do incredibly well it's you know forecast to rise by 11 percent by 2028 So it's a place that's doing really well. If you look at the kind of consumer research on this, Mintel do all of that. They say 81% of people see chocolate as an affordable treat and 68% say it's also a good mood booster. And two thirds of British consumers eat chocolate at least twice a week. So there's definitely still the sales there.
0: It's the ups and downs of chocolate in a psychological and an economic sense.
1: Correct. Right, let's move on.
0: Now, another industry where uh, there are major ethical challenges is in fast fashion and lots of allegations, again, of slave labour being used. And we've actually had this for years with, you know, this has been a problem in this industry long before uh, the rise of the global giant we want to talk about, which is Xi'an, an extraordinary Chinese business. Some people think it's already worth... $90 billion, there's a lot of talk about it coming to the stock market, you know, in the new year. I have to say, I know it much more as a, I'm not a customer, I know it much more as a business concept. But as a business concept, it is one of the most extraordinary businesses in the world. Tell me a bit about it, Steph. So
1: it's really interesting because I think we're in what you would call the third generation of fast fashion now. So it kicked off, I would say, with like your Zara's and your H&M's who had that kind of high turnover of clothes in the shops and online but then you got like the and
0: just to be clear because I remember when these businesses were launched the sort of gap from identifying a trend to it appearing on the shelves was a few months right yeah. it was like three or four yeah. months which at the time seemed incredibly fast yeah
1: so you'd see right? it on the catwalk and then a few months later you would see it In the shops. So they were the kind of, I would say, first generation fast fashion. And as you say, that you would see the trends appear in the shops a few months after they were first started. Then you got the kind of digital second generation, which is your boo hoos and your misguided and your pretty little things, who were. We're doing this slightly faster. They were obviously digital only shops. So, you know, lots of people buying their stuff online only, not having the uh, joy of going into a shop to try things on, but they weren't bothered. And then I would say now with Shein and other companies like Timu are these third generation fast fashion companies. So these are the guys who, within days, they're using AI to identify trends and then churning out thousands of garments in record time. And at any one point, on like Sheehan's site there's something like 600,000 items listed on the site and the way they're doing this is they're working directly with manufacturers and they have you know thousands of manufacturers that they use you know a trend will appear by some influencer or whatever the reason is they will go to this manufacturer get them to produce a small batch and get them out quick directly from manufacturer to consumer and these products are really cheap like we're talking under a a tenner for an item you can you know snap up skirts whatever tops the lot and you can buy several things for less than a tenner and it's fast it's cheap but it comes at a cost and
0: and we'll come back to the cost in a minute because i think this is quite important but just to sort of talk about the technological part of it i mean what is it seems to me to be remarkable is they use algorithms and ai to identify trends, what people want to buy, and then they will do, again, they will then use AI to create their own design based on those trends that they've identified. And then as I understand it, within three days of the design, okay, the goods will be available to buy. Three days from design to somebody sitting in London being able to order this stuff online is really quite... Extraordinary.
1: Because of this, their revenues have absolutely rocketed. So they've gone from like just over a billion dollars in 2018 to nearly $15 billion in the first half of this year. So their growth is incredible. And at one point, Shein was valued at $100 billion, making it uh, more valuable than H&M and Zara combined. So this is huge. Now, it's dropped since then, and you know we're going to come to the reasons why on that, but people are talking about how much is it going to be valued at when it's listed, and people are saying anything in between kind of $50 billion and $90 billion. But this is a company that's grown incredibly, but is now facing a backlash, because it's that typical well, phrase of things being too good to be true.
0: Well, so I asked, you know, this is fundamental research, obviously, but I talked to my partner's Daughter Margot and I said, "Do you ever use she?" And, and actually, I got text back in all caps: "No, never, disgusting." Yes, right. It's and, a dirty so, uh, word as well and, now. Because basically, among young people, they believe that it's not an ethical company. Yeah, you know, one of the things that is quite striking and is is a genuine challenge if it's going to list on a stock exchange is the allegations against it. Is that, for example. And, you know, US legislators have talked about this that it uses slave labor among the Uyghur population. As you know, there is this incredible, tragic, appalling treatment of the Uyghur population by the Chinese government. And there uh, is. You know, growing body of evidence that there's forced labor among these imprisoned, you know, this, this large imprisoned ethnic minority. And if she can be proved to be exploiting these people, then it will struggle certainly to get a listing in America because, you know, American legislators will just say not, you know, yeah. no way.
1: They're trying to distance themselves from all of that now, aren't they? Because they're cutting ties with a lot of their Chinese businesses. So they've moved their headquarters to Singapore now. They're manufacturing in Turkey and Brazil. So they're very much like setting themselves up as, you know, I guess to be listed as not being the big problem everyone thinks they are. Sheehan obviously deny that there are any infringements of rules when it comes to their manufacturing. They say we're committed to respecting human rights and adhering to local laws and regulations in each market we operate in. The other thing that's really fascinating about this is is their big rival is is Timu and there's a bit of a turf war going on between them and what's going on behind the scenes is fascinating here because Timu are currently suing Sheehan over alleged copyright and mafia style intimidation of supply. So like Sheehan, Timu uses a lot of the same manufacturers and there's some lawsuits that have gone in now saying that suppliers who were working for both companies were basically held hostage by Sheehan in their offices for up to 10 hours so they couldn't talk to the Timu people about what was going on. I mean, this is just incredible, but this is genuine lawsuits going ahead now between the two of them. And, and if you're thinking, what the hell's Timu? I've never heard of that before. It's, it's still quite new in the UK. So... It's a company that started, I think, in the last couple of years. Um, It's a subsidiary of a big Chinese company called PDD Holdings that's owned by this Chinese billionaire called Colin Huang. And um, this is a company that has massively gone out on marketing. They took up two ad slots in the Super Bowl and paid about £11 million for them. It only launched in the UK in April this year. It's already been investigated by which, because people have been able to buy a weapons off the site allegedly but again it's really really cheap sells products directly from Chinese sellers and you know you can get lightning deals where you can suddenly buy really random things for less than a quid and you know you're, you're encouraged to share the app to get better deals so this is the other the big name in this but there's a real fight going on between Timu and Sheehan but it's all very messy and and I do think it's this kind of race to the bottom Isn't it? We've been in a cost of living. Well, we are in a cost of living crisis. You can can completely understand why
0: somebody who hasn't got a lot of money is going to want to spend as little as possible on looking good. And you get that. But the question is, if it's also, this is this is completely like the, the chocolate conversation we're having, if it's on the back of people being exploited in a really appalling way, then we should all be concerned about that and we should not be encouraging it. And obviously there is also big geopolitical Politics here, you know, uh, t- tying in with what I said earlier about the concerns about whether or not it is using forced labor, particularly among the Uyghur population. It is striking that the House Select Committee on Strategic Competition between the US and China, Chinese Communist Party, is looking at Xi'an's ties to the Chinese government. It's looking at, as I say, whether it's breaching the the Uyghur, the American Uyghur Forced Labour Prevention Act. We haven't even talked about the environmental consequences um, of manufacturing on this scale. And then separate from all of that, uh, which is interesting to me, is the whole copyright-ish area, which is sort of massive for all of these companies that basically scrape the internet for the latest designs and then make their own versions. So there is a tonne of ethical stuff around yeah. all of this. And and weirdly, before the program, w- one of the things that we were talking about is the rise of all those businesses that allow us to sell the stuff that we no longer want to wear ourselves. And that seems to me to be a much more, if you think about the ethical environmental, that's, that's a business that yeah. we can all support. You know, it's recycling in in so many different ways. It's recycling products. It's getting money churned throughout the economy. I mean, those sorts of businesses that make it so much easier to engage in a se- in secondhand trade. I mean, they would be ones that I would totally applaud.
1: Yeah, and it's also one I'm addicted to because we're going to, we'll probably talk about this in another episode, but Vinted. When I say the word Vinted to people now, and this is an app which allows you to, to sell your stuff. It's a bit like eBay, but it's way more user-friendly and much easier. And I've been selling off quite a few things on there
0: the interesting thing to get back to is she and it's as you know it's got this rather reclusive boss who sort of created it who is sort of known as chris shoe and he you know lots of stories about how he even now, sort of works in the office till sort of three, four in the morning. He's does uh, he's, he play
1: video games? Is he one of them?
0: Uh, well, the problem about him is there's almost no real detail about him. He is a genuine recluse. Actually, these days it's very hard to be a famous trillionaire billionaire in China because you seem, you know, Chinese government doesn't like rival sources of power, and you know those sort of potentates in the commercial sector who've got too big for their boots have tended to. Sort of disappear. It's quite dangerous taking it to be seen by the Chinese government, as I say, as a rival power center. He he is not one of those. He's very elusive, but he's also incredibly ambitious and driven. And to get back to your point about you know where he's changing his suppliers and changing. Where he manufactures. You sort of wouldn't bet against him reconfiguring the business so it becomes, from a governance point of view, something that he will will be able to float eventually. But and I think there, that's what he's pl- doing. But there's plenty work to do.
1: Um, in the time we've been talking, I've just had two vintage notifications of two things I've sold. So there So your are. time hasn't
0: been completely wasted talking <laughs> to me. Well done.
1: Right. Should we have a break? Yeah, of course. Hola. Hello. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches, but there's only one
0: McCrispie. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal. So why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices, free samples, Free shipping And our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.
1: Welcome back to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern.
0: And with me, Robert Perston.
1: So, looking ahead to the next year and the fact we know there's going to be an election... In terms of what the next chancellor, whoever they are, is going to inherit, it's not ideal, but given the latest inflation figures, maybe not as horrendous as it was looking. But, Robert, what are your thoughts on this? Because in particular, everyone's talking about it. it's going to be Rachel Reeves who becomes chancellor, the first female chancellor in 800 years, or ever, basically. You and I have both met with her, you more recently. What, what do you think?
0: Uh, yeah, so look, obviously, I know all these players, known them for years. Um, and who, look, whoever wins the next election... Is going to face a very difficult inheritance. You know, relatively low growth, despite the better news on inflation, public finances that you know where we have public sector debt that, by historical standards, looks too high, or at least at a level where adding to it is risky. And that means basically the traditional thing that any new government would want to do, which is either spend much more on public services or, you know, offer tax cuts is not going to be available to anybody who wins the next election. I mean, the interesting thing, therefore, is what you can do. And there are two different things to think about for a second. One is, what do you need to promise voters before an election? And then what do you have to do after an election? They're not necessarily the same things. I am very struck. I don't know if they're making the right political judgment that Labour's current position is they are not going to promise anything big, certainly anything that costs significant money before the election. Mm. She talked about
1: this ironclad fiscal discipline, didn't she, in the speech she did, and this kind of securonomics where we're not going to spend, you know, we're going to grow out of it rather than big tax cuts or plans for big spending.
0: But it's also just interesting to me, you know whether or not they can simply take for granted that the Tories will lose the election, whether they do need to offer more in the way of particularly public spending pledges before the election and they've decided not. they've decided they categorically don't want to say anything new and significant before the election. they don't want to give any hostage to fortune and it's not just about public spending. it's actually about any big, Policy. It is striking to me that they have literally just taken the view that steady as she goes, that protecting the public finances and proving to the electorate that they will be safe stewards of the economy is all that is needed. Um, Don't you think voters
1: are quite like that, though? Because I think what we're we're sick of is people like the kind of the personality driven, dramatic governance we've seen over the last few years, won't people be quite glad of, oh my God, it's just going to be calm for a while. And okay, that might not mean I suddenly get this great tax incentive, but if things are just calmer in the economy, that's going to be better for everyone.
0: Well, look, it's certainly the case that the business community has been persuaded by... Reeves. I spent a lot of time talking to business leaders and she spent an enormous time talking to business leaders. I mean, it is a bit of a joke that, you know, if you run a British company, if you haven't spent time with Rachel Reeves, then something has gone very badly wrong. I mean, they, honestly, honestly the, the, the charm offensive has been like nothing yeah. I've ever seen. I mean, labor did try and do this in the rounds to the ninety seven election, but this is a multiple of that breakfast, lunch, dinners. And actually, business leaders basically do regard her as calm and reassuring. And they do believe that when she says that she's going to put the stability of the public finances first, that that is, you know, a genuine commitment that she's going to, Deliver on. I mean, I have to say it's causing an on- enormous ructions within the Labour Party because, you know, the big thing that they were promising was 28 billion of spending a year to make the economy more sustainably green. And she has now said that that will not be spent if it breaches the fiscal rules. So it's become an almost meaningless commitment. And she's tried to make it a meaningless commitment because the one line of attack that the Tories have had. Was that this 28 billion was going to bust the public finances, lead to massively more government borrowing and higher interest rates and higher inflation? And so her only defence against that is basically to cut the legs from under Ed Miliband as you know the energy and environmental shadow minister, because she is now basically saying, yes, you know we hope to get to 28 billion a year, um, uh, you know of spending on this, but to be clear, there's no timetable for it anymore, and it's. Only- only if, you know, the debt is falling after five years, which is the fiscal rule that they have. So in, in that sense, it's 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 become a wish rather than a promise. Within Labour, of course, they hate that because they, they do want you know, an ambitious spending, particularly when it comes to making the economy more, uh, you know, more environmentally sustainable. They do want a more ambitious and government. And she but, but said she, she was going she... to be
1: the most green chancellor, didn't she?
0: But anyway, I want to get on to two other things very briefly on this. One is, uh, as I said in the last episode, the fall in inflation means lower interest rates, which means there will be more headroom, both for this current government in terms of the budget, which we're expecting maybe the end of February, maybe, probably March. But anyway, it's going to be a relatively early budget in the new year. And he will have, uh, you know, Jeremy Hunt will have more money available for tax cuts and public spending. It also, of course, means that any government coming in, if It leads to an economic recovery. If interest rates and these are all hypotheticals, but if interest rates remain lower, there will be more headroom for a Labour government. So there are there are some uncertainties about this. If you you're not really old enough to remember, unfortunately, I lived and breathed this. But one of the things that was quite interesting was that if you go back to the mid '90s in 94-95 Gordon Brown and Tony Blair thought that they would be inheriting difficult economic circumstances. The nearer we got to the election, actually economic growth was strong It was 4.5%
1: GDP in 1997
0: when the election The economy was recovering very strongly public finances were recovering so when they actually got into power the inheritance was one of the best inheritances in an economic sense that any government had had. Now I don't think that the public finances and the economy are going To improve to that extent, I still think it's going to be very challenging. That's just my working assumption is an election in sort of October, November could slip to December, but my working assumption is, is an election around then. You know, I would assume that Labour will inherit a, a slightly better set of economic circumstances than we currently or we would have been predicting, you know, a few days ago, but it's still going to be very challenging. I don't think it's going to be anything like the extraordinarily benign conditions that Gordon Brown. Inherited in 97, which allowed him. I mean, it is astonishing. You know, we've got public sector debt that's not far off 100% of GDP at the moment. He got public sector debt down to 30% of GDP. So the change over that time period yeah. is really extraordinary. So there is obviously less room for maneuver for whoever forms the next government. But there's another point I want to make, and this seems to me to be the most important point. In a way, for me, the most important thing that any party that wants to govern after the next election should be doing now is to be making bold plans, and probably bold plans that they don't tell us about. Now, what do I mean by that? If we go back to 97, days, literally, I think it may even been the day after the election, I got a call from the treasury saying you need to come in and see the chancellor now because we're about to make an extraordinarily important announcement and i went in and i went to see gordon brown and this was his announcement that they were giving control of interest rates to the bank of england it was the most significant change to the way that this economy is managed for decades right so giving independent control of interest rates and the power to control, or the the primary responsible for controlling inflation, to the Bank of England, was done on literally, the, the, you know, the first proper day in power for Labour, and it had been, even though the speeches that Brown had been given, been giving a shadow chancellor, were consistent with giving power to the Bank of England in this way. It wasn't in the manifesto, and you know, if it was going to happen, nobody knew when it was going to happen. So this was a huge shock. It was a massive shock but it was widely regarded as incredibly positive news. You know, the, the, uh, I think the stock market rose pretty significantly off the back of it. I'm pretty sure government bond prices rose off the back of it because people just naturally assumed this would lead to a better environment, you know, lower interest rates, lower inflation. But Almost apart from that benign impact of the announcement, what was more important about it than anything else was it showed that the new government had a sense of purpose and direction. And the one problem for any government coming in, particularly in a world that is so messy and complicated as today, is that if you don't go in and immediately announce really big projects, then what happens is civil servants bring you problems civil servants essentially take over the government by basically saying, this needs to be fixed, this needs to be fixed, this, and government becomes a muddle and it becomes directionless. And any hope that the British people had that a change of government was going to lead to progress, a new direction for the country actually evaporates pretty quickly. And, pe- and you know, voters get disappointed and the optimism that we need disappears. And so in a way, The thing that I would hope is happening is that they are beavering away on. A whole series of big projects that they will then give to the civil servants and say, these are your priorities, you know, bring us solutions, don't bring us, you know, yesterday's problems. Mm-hmm. And it is about, as I say, creating a sense of direction. Now I am told that Keir Starmer's team has massively increased over the last few months, and he's now got about 50 people working on the program. For government. So I think there, you know, I think there is a chance in the months that remain before the election that they will develop a program of this sort. But my fundamental point is developing in the program is probably more important than telling the electorate about it. Because it is whether you can govern effectively after the election that is going to determine the economic future of this country.
1: Yeah. Do you know what you say about coming in with one big thing? Do you know what I would do? Right. Obviously I'm not Chancellor and very unlikely to become Chancellor. Great shame. But... I think that the thing that businesses constantly talk to me about is skills and the fact that they don't have the right skills. You know, yes, there's uncertainty. Yes, there's the rising cost of their, you know, inputs or whatever, the supply costs and everything else. But fundamentally, year after year after year, they talk to me about not having the right skills to do the jobs. And I think it would be so good if someone came in and just completely overhauled how we educate and skill people in this country and I don't just mean in school, um, and I know this is a long term project as well, but if we had kind of lifelong skills as the key thing in this economy which was linked to business or so businesses are incentivized fire tax breaks or whatever to work with education institutes and I say institutes rather than schools because I think this is much more uh, bigger than it just being a school setting if there was that if there was that link between people and what our economy needs it would improve productivity it would mean people could have jobs they like people could learn about all the different jobs in the the world rather than knowing only knowing this kind of siloed ones that they're probably terrible careers teacher has told them about and sorry if you are a careers teacher I know there are some good ones but there's a lot of terrible ones and if there was that if there was much more of a focus on what skills do we need how do we make them how do we get people to enjoy work and to feel happy in work and and that was all linked with tax incentives and with proper curriculums set towards this. I think that would be the thing, rather than just tweaking things around the edges and never dealing with the fundamental problem, which is that we aren't producing the right skills. No,
0: I agree with that completely. That's, uh, As you say, it's incredibly important. But Uh, 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 (laughs) what uh, are you going to say? uh, And I've got three. Okay, so one is as you know i am a great proponent about the extent to which we are living through an industrial revolution and artificial intelligence industrial revolution that it is a general purpose technology it will improve productivity it will make us better off if harnessed in the right way and so it is about putting in place leadership regulations so that ai is for good it means making sure that to your point if somebody loses their job because ai you know provides a much cheaper alternative that that person does get the yeah. skills they that they need for the system. new economy we're going into. So yeah. a massive retraining program. It means making sure that we have a tax system that, in this industrial revolution, means that the fruits of the A benefits, the profits do result in higher wages, and indeed it may in some cases have to be higher benefits, rather than all the gains going to a handful of mega rich owners of the relevant technologies and businesses. We saw a winner takes all, a pernicious winner takes all economic structure emerge with the earlier digital revolutions. We need to have learned from that to make sure the fruits of this industrial revolution are shared out much more equably at a much earlier stage. And I'm staggered by how little leadership we are seeing on AI when it comes to an economic sense from any of our leaders at the moment. But this is the big priority for the new year. Second, um, as you know, there's a lot about AI in bust. That's another tenor I owe you. Um, the, Do you know? Um, I was but, just
1: thinking you hadn't mentioned your book for that when you started going on about back in the 90s and the Labour government. Know. I thought you'll have written a book on this. I have That's written coming. A book. I, have,
0: I have, of course, written a whole. Uh, there was a book of called, he there was a book called Brown's Britain still available. I understand. Uh, anyway, Ka-ching. Uh, so anyway, look. To, but the other thing, on, the other thing is point. we we haven't we've consistently not invested enough in you know. Private and public sector investment has not been what it should be, and R&D in this country, research and development, is not what it should be. I would create an independent body which would, on a rolling basis, every two or three years, look at what the tax structure has to be to make sure that investment and R&D in this country is at least the average of our major competitive g7 major competitor economies because i do think if you're going to give tax cuts it should be tax cuts for investments that make all of us better off and so having a review every two or three years of how the tax structure has to evolve to ensure that people are investing enough in the cut co- or businesses are investing enough in the country is an absolute priority and then finally something that as you know i'm passionate about which is I do think that you need to re- reform planning particularly planning when yeah, it comes to joke. you know the bureaucracy. Um, particularly when it comes for new factories, new offices and as you know I'm particularly obsessed with the Oxford Cambridge corridor which could become this incredibly powerful cluster of pharma and tech companies uh particularly in the digital space and so reforming the planning system and encouraging investment along that belt could make such a huge difference to our growth prospects
1: is this the point where i stand up and applaud you (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, come on it's, it's it's the time of year when you can like be a little char- bit less sarcastic and a little bit more charitable yeah
1: Peston for Chancellor everyone oh, right uh, should we wrap things up then thank you to everyone for listening if you want to send any comments questions whatever or, or your thoughts on what you do if you're a Chancellor gmail.com or you can find us on our social media pages
0: and just to say to everybody I know it's been a challenging year but you know happy new year to all of you and let's hope that 24 is better for almost everybody.
1: Sounds so prime ministerial doesn't he? Goodbye.
0: Bye bye.